This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So I want to get right to our next guest, Paul Krugman. He is back with us, Nobel laureate, economist, New York Times columnist, City University of New York, distinguished professor of economics. He's author of many, many books. And his latest book, now out in paper book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. He is joining us on the phone in Princeton, New Jersey. And he also, by the way, tweeted out that he just got his second vaccine, COVID vaccine today. Uh, Paul, it is great to have you here back on Bloomberg. How are you? Uh, I'm a little weary. I think there's a little bit of the second day effect of the of the vaccine, but I'm fine. Okay, so you are feeling a little bit. We've heard that from a fair amount of people, so you do feel a little yeah. something. Yeah, it, it, it's fine. It, uh, the water is fine. Uh, jump in. <laughs> we're, we're, I'm ready. We're ready and eager. <laughs> so, yeah. Paul, let's talk about kind of uh, this world where we are. We, we're going to talk about your book in a moment, but I do want to ask you, when you look at the U.S. economy, the impact of COVID, there are some economic reports that do feel like things are certainly getting better. Labor market's still tough. How do you see the U.S. economy? I think we still have another six months of, rough times because it is very hard to do normal business when people are rightfully still afraid of, 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 of COVID. And so we're going to be a pandemic-depressed economy uh, for well past the middle of this year. But I'm actually, I'm quite optimistic about after that. I think we are, we don't have the same kind of uh, overhang of excessive debts and so on that we had after the last crisis. We are apparently on the verge of getting an adequate uh, economic relief package. So I think we're going to have a probably going to be feeling pretty optimistic by this time next year. Well, that's that's some that's some good news. Um, what about when it comes to the labor market specifically? How do we get millions of Americans who lost their job during this pandemic back to work? I think that's going to be a lot easier than people imagine. Uh, the The job losses are concentrated. Uh, there are a lot of it's not all there, but a lot of the job losses are concentrated in sectors that are basically shut down because of pandemic risks. And once we have widespread vaccination, you know, this is all assuming that the variants don't get ahead of us and, and we lose control of the pandemic again. But once we have widespread vaccination, effective herd immunity, people will start eating in restaurants again. People will start to travel again. There'll be some dislocations because we won't go back to exactly the same economy we had before. But you know, after the after the last crisis, there were many people who were saying, oh, just those jobs are not coming back. Workers don't have the right skills. And they were totally wrong. Turned out that we were quite capable of getting back to full employment. And there's no reason to think that isn't true again. Do you think that when we get on the other side of this, that we do, you, you're optimistic, obviously, as you said, that we do have potentially a run in the economy, a run perhaps in the financial markets, just like we had after the financial crisis, which was kind of low and slow, but kept on going for a long time? Well, this one looks to me like a, a lot faster. Okay. And there were reasons that there was a combination of reasons why it was so slow last time. One of it was that this there was this legacy of excess household debt, uh, which is not the situation now. Another was that we had a lot of destructive fiscal austerity that was holding back the recovery. And uh, the, you know those by-elections in Georgia made all the difference. It means that this time, and Democrats have learned the lesson. So now that they have, even if it's a razor-thin majority, they're, they're not going to make that mistake again. They're going to go for a big package 
And so I, I actually think this is going to be a very different story. I, if you believe some of the projections out there about growth, uh, it's going to be, it, it really is morning in America style growth that we may be looking at. We may be looking at something like, the, you know, over fourth quarter on fourth quarter, six, seven percent. Uh, this is this is looking very, very different. Not at all the story. You know, don't, don't fight the last war on this one. Well, you know, it's interesting. So with that optimism, do you think we still need a stimulus package? And I think I know the answer to it because I know you've been supportive of it. Do you still think we need more help? Yeah, so it's not a stimulus package. It's mostly just not what it's about. It's a, it's an economic rescue package. It is, we have a miserable time. We won't be back to anything like full employment, even with all of this stuff, until early next year. And in the meantime, mass unemployment, uh, lots of disruption, many businesses in great, in, in terrible, under terrible stress, uh, the state and local governments, it's very uneven, but many of them are still in deep, trouble and it's all about getting people through this not there there's no it's gratuitous we should not be having a lot of people suffering when we know that the economy is going to be coming back when america is not poor but a lot of individuals and a lot of businesses and some governments are very cash strapped so this is all about getting us through this is a bridge Mm -hmm. it's not a stimulus it's a bridge across a chasm that we know is there but we know is limited in, in in width are you optimistic about the political will to get something this large done? I mean, even as you write in your book, Paul Krugman, in 21st century America, everything is political. This stimulus package certainly is one of those things. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's almost certainly. It's funny thing. The 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 I, I hate calling it the stimulus package. The relief package is enormously popular, has gigantic public approval, relatively little disapproval. Even Republicans approve of it, and it will probably not get a single Republican vote in Congress. Right, there's a so serious disconnect the, there. There's a disconnect. The, the, the partisanship of the professional politicians is enormous. It's absolutely, it, if, it's, if it's good for America and as a Democrat is in the White House, they're against it. And so it's going to be a party line vote but the at the moment uh the democrats you know the democrats have 50 senators plus kamala harris they have a narrow majority in the house and they are probably going to stay unified there may be a, a few things that are shaved off because the most conservative democrats don't want them but it's not it's it's not going to be a modest package it's going to be a really big thing all the same well do you feel like some of those zombie ideas and zombie arguments are going to come out which is what you write about in your book uh, you know some of those erroneous economic ideas that in particular you find the politicians kind of you know trotting out when they need it so I'm just curious what you're getting ready for oh well we're, the, the uh, you know, debt debt uh, fears which some didn't matter as long as, as Donald Trump was from the White House are now back debt is an existential threat as long as there's a D after the president's name. Um, there are inflation. I mean, there there is a better case for thinking that we might have some inflation now than there was last time. But the the hyperinflation zombie is is back in full force, and other stuff too. I mean, I think we're witnessing the the birth of a new zombie. This whole thing in Texas, where you have you know the natural gas pipelines freeze, and and it's somehow or other wind power caused it. So that's a and don't don't believe that evidence will ever change that for. Uh, Ten years from now, everybody on one side of the political spectrum will know that somehow it was the windmills that caused the the great freeze of Texas. So, no, the zombies, 
That's the thing about zombies. No matter how times, how many times you think you've killed them, they just keep on shambling along eating our brains. So I want to make sure I, I, I get this. You're not concerned about inflation with a, and I'll use your term, relief package of this size. No, I mean, it's, it is a big package. It could very well get us pretty much to full employment. But mm-hmm. when I do the arithmetic and when I think about the risks, I, it, it, anyone who thinks that we're going to be, it's going to be 1979 all over again or something like that, it, the, the numbers just don't back that. We're, it, this is a big package. It is, for once, it looks like it might actually be big enough, but it's not big enough to produce something that is actually scary inflation. Well, and it's interesting, and I have someone actually tweeting at me, and they said, could you ask Paul if the Fed should start buying Bitcoin to pay off the national <laughs> debt? <laughs> God. I mean, I, you know, the, the difference between Bitcoin and GameStop is that GameStop had the problem that there was an actual real business and a use for it, which meant that there was some tether to its value. Bitcoin, because no one actually uses it, it's purely speculative, <laughs> the sky's the limit. Well, what do you think ultimately happens? I mean, do you have you thought about, I don't know, five years, are we still talking about Bitcoin? Is it now that it's through, what, 52,000? Is it 100,000? Like, what, what are your projections on how this plays out, Paul? I mean, I, I, have, I have this problem, which is that you know, the Bitcoin's been around. It's hard to believe how long it's been around, and it's still not actually money. People don't actually use it for any significant amount of transactions. On the other hand, it just floats out there. And you, a lot of the things you can say about the uselessness of Bitcoin, you can also say about gold. Mm-hmm. And gold has kept its value for you know for five thousand years, despite basically being a very little real world use. So maybe Bitcoin just hangs in there. Uh, I don't know. It's hard. To, it's hard to figure. I can't quite get into the psychology, but there it is. When you say hang in there, what do you what do you mean? Do you mean it becomes part of a balance sheet at corporations, like Tesla said last week, like Elon Musk said? Does it? just hang out and, and continue to rise? Uh, does it drop well, in value significantly? Not rise without limit, but maybe out there, maybe there'll be uh, Bitcoin at, you name a price, it's completely arbitrary. There may be people who will continue to hold Bitcoin and say, well, Bitcoin is valuable because other people think it's valuable and it's, uh, and there, there's never a moment of reckoning. I mean, it, it's, it, I mean, there's an alternative story where one day people, we have a wily e. Coyote moment People look down, realize there's nothing supporting it, and it just crashes to, to earth. But, but you know, that hasn't happened so far, and it's been around for a while. So maybe, uh, who knows? I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, where I, I don't know that, it, that it, it's hard to make any rational argument about where the price should be. And maybe because there's no rational argument, it can be anything. One thing I did want to ask you, going back to the economy, Paul, is, you know, new administration. But the four years of Donald Trump and his administration what impact or lasting impact do you think that that had on the U.S. economy? Well, there was a lot of wasted time. You know, we we had we spent uh, 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 whatever it was, I guess, uh, 208 weeks waiting for infrastructure week to actually happen, and it never did. <laughs> uh, so we didn't do any investment in the future. But I think one thing we did learn: uh, Trump uh, ran really a quite stimulative fiscal policy. We, it wasn't efficiently stimulative, but we did have a sustained budget deficits, and you know, nothing bad happened as a result of those deficits. And we also learned that the economy could run hotter than people, a lot harder than people had thought. I've looked back in 2015, the Fed thought 4.8% unemployment was full employment. And so we, we learned that the economy has more room to run 
And that's something that somebody else can, you know, something that Biden can can take advantage of that discovery and maybe actually use the the running room to actually build some infrastructure too. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 one thing to get back to full employment, but it's it's another thing to tackle inequality in this country. And one thing that's happened and been laid bare during this pandemic has been the gap between the haves and have-nots has grown in, has grown even more than it was before. What is the best way to tackle inequality in the US? Yeah, I think you have to do a just it's a you have to do a bunch of things. There's no single magic magic bullet. I mean, child child tax credits can do a lot because it doesn't take a whole lot of money to vastly improve the lots of the lives of millions of children. Uh, minimum wage. Not sure we're going to get the fifteen dollars, but a higher minimum wage helps. Uh, labor. I, one of the things, sort of under the radar things, is that the Biden administration is more pro union organizing than any administration we've had in decades. And that might make a difference in terms of enhancing workers' bargaining power. Uh, and then there's other stuff. I mean, uh, I don't know if we're, whether an Elizabeth Warren wealth tax is, is anywhere in our near future, but you can make a start. There's certainly uh, there's no one thing. What you just need is, is a, a government, a Congress that that tries to improve the lot of people who are in the bottom half of the income distribution and. Uh, we really haven't done that at all for a long time. So we might be surprised at how well it works if we finally start doing it. Are, are, are you concerned that a wealth tax would, would drive people out of the country, would drive the wealthiest out of the country? I think uh, it would be mean, a little bit. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that, uh, let's put it this way, uh, taxes are in, in New York City, which is where I spend most of my time. The tax rate on, on high-income people in New York City is considerably higher than it is in uh, in know in other parts of the country and they don't see a lot of wealthy people uh moving to kansas they're going to uh, miami they're, <laughs> they're going to miami and, and no, austin going to miami but some but, uh, but but even that i mean the fact there's some there's some mobility of people but it's the yeah. idea that everybody is ready to move uh, there are a lot of things that matter in life more than your tax rate and that that will continue to be true Hey, listen, one thing I wanted to get your thoughts on, Paul, because we caught up uh, our David Weston uh, for this week's Wall Street Week, caught up with Larry Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, and they talked about the stimulus plan. You know Summers has been – oh, actually, hang on for a second because uh, President Biden is walking to a podium. He's in Michigan. He has been touring a Pfizer factory, uh, and he is expected to make – some comments. Uh, looks like he's getting a little bit of an introduction uh, by uh, the folks that are guiding him on his tour. Do we want to go there or do we want to hold off, guys? All right, we're going to hold on. Let's. So let's let's stay with um, uh, Paul Krugman, who's still with us. But he's been critical, and I think his concern is. I was going to play some sound, but he cites you specifically, and he's concerned about people. I think you've talked about maybe people kind of shoring up their own finances, and he's concerned that that's not the best use of uh, any kind of relief package, COVID relief package. What do you say to that? Oh, I, uh, the, there are different parts of the relief package. And the part that's the most popular, which is the $1,400 checks, is also the least targeted. So some of that money will go to people who really badly need it. Uh, but a lot of the money will go to people who have been doing okay in the pandemic. Um, and if we were short of money, I would worry about that. Mm. But we're not. The U.S. government can borrow at incredibly low interest rates. Debt is not a pressing concern. 
Um, Larry is, I understand. I mean, Larry is, <laughs> Larry is not stupid. Let's say, let's say that. <laughs> we, we, we actually had a debate on this uh, at the Princeton webinar last week. Um, and it's a, if people spend a lot of that, there is some risk of overheating. But I think the, uh, the odds are that to the extent that we're giving a lot of money to people who are not urgently in need of it, they're also likely to not spend it right away. So there, I, I think it's, you know, if we had unlimited time to craft a very careful proposal and had unlimited ability to distinguish who really needed the money, then you could probably achieve what we needed with a somewhat smaller package. But that's not where we are. We need to get mm-hmm. this thing out the door now. And so I'm okay with it. So, yeah. So, okay if some people save a little bit and shore up their finances, but you're thinking, I, you know, and I think I've heard, we've heard this a lot, that if we overshoot it, it's okay because there's a lot of people who are really hurting right now. Yeah, and we've had an object lesson in, from, from 2009 about what happens if you undershoot, which is you mm-hmm. don't get a second chance. That's so, a great, but yeah. that's a great point, right? We learned <laughs> in the financial crisis. Yeah, no, that's right. Occasionally, some of us, uh, you know, the zombies keep on shambling along regardless, but some of us actually do, I hope, learn some lessons from, from experience. Hey, Paul Krugman, did you get a chance to check out yesterday's testimony from the CEO of Robinhood and CEO of Reddit, CEO of Citadel, and more? I, you know, I read the accounts of it. I didn't uh, sit through it. You know, I have to say, I just cannot get worked up about any of this. <laughs> Why not? Because, look, we have, a, we have a huge problem of inequality in the United States. We have a huge problem that ordinary people are not not getting enough and are not, are not don't have adequate uh, lifestyles. Uh, the way out of that is not for everybody to become a day trader. Right? This is not. This is this is always going to be marginal. And the this whole stock trading thing. That there are no good guys in this story. I mean, the, obviously mm. the hedge funds are not lovable. But you know, putting a short squeeze uh, on 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 a hedge fund even if it's done by a bunch of small investors, it's also not a lovable thing to be doing. Uh, and people are complaining that, you know, that Robinhood stopped trading, but you know, the people who are blocked from buying at that point actually in many cases were prevented from losing a lot of money. <laughs> they would have been buying a GameStop at ridiculous prices. So I, but altogether, this is, a, like, this is like a drama that involves mm-hmm people and issues that I don't see why the rest of us should care about. But it does it does raise a point, which is that in, regular people have access to financial markets now in a way that they have never had before yeah. with zero commission trading. And, and they can do what used to cost hundreds of dollars to do to make a single trade. Is that a good thing? Is it good to have that kind of access? Probably not. In the end, I mean, I'm not going to say that it should be denied because we can't uh, it's a it's a free country, and if if this can be done, I, I don't want to be too paternalistic. But the fact of the matter is that if you're an ordinary investor, you should not be doing, you should not be stock picking, you should not be, you, you don't have the resources to figure that out. And the uh, you know what what all the personal finance experts tell you is buy index funds, do things that you know you should probably should be in the market some, but you should not be playing the market. And this is. So making that easier for people to do is actually not a good thing. So I want to squeeze in because I I know we will have to ultimately go to the president, but I want to ask you about something in your book. And you write, 
you know, in terms of things that are important, the most important thing is, and you say, sometimes I wonder whether I'm wasting my time talking about any other issue other than climate change. If we don't get that right, if we don't put policies in place, nothing else matters. That's right. If, if, the, if we really have, if climate change is potentially uh, a civilization destroying event. This is, and it's, it, you know, I don't really care what productivity is if there's no civilization to be productive in. And so, um, so that is the most important thing. Now, the, 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 you know, technology is our friend. Renewable energy has been uh, a miraculous story this past 15 years. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the possibilities with actually fairly moderate policies to bring climate contrain climate change under control are huge. So that's something that we should be very um, excited about, but we have to do it. And of course, we have to go around and we have to be reasonable and not say somehow that windmills caused uh, natural gas pipelines to freeze. Right. That's you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, we saw it happen this week with the governor of, of Texas. Um, I, I, I do wonder in this political in this politically charged environment, what is an effective way to get the urgency of the climate change message across? Because there are a large number of people in Washington who do not think it's a priority. Yeah. Well, that's what that's what may doom us. And I don't know what what you can do except to try to make the case. And for those who who do have some power to do something about it, to uh, to use the levers they have. It's I mean, we're luckily it turns out we're. There was a time when fighting climate change looked like a real kind of eat-your-spinach root canal thing, that it was going to be extremely expensive and hard, and, and it looked hopeless. Now it looks like just a fairly modest financial nudges towards uh, climate-friendly technologies can actually make all the difference. And maybe, just maybe, we can do that. Uh, we better hope so for the sake of, of the next few generations. Paul Krugman, if you were sitting down with the president uh, and his team or the president one-on-one and you said, hey, this is one economic policy you've got to get right right now, what would you say? Oh, I mean, right. I mean, they, I, I, I'm for, I guess we're not supposed to call the Green New Deal Build Back better, but I think a <laughs> kind of a combination of, of, of infrastructure investment with a strong climate change focus is, yeah. is the way to go. That's right. how we're going to do it. Good stuff. Paul Krugman, thank you so much. His book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future, it is in paperback, and you can find it now. Paul Krugman, of course, New York Times columnist, Nobel laureate, and uh, thank you so much for all that time. What a great conversation. Yeah, it was fantastic.